Jonathan, at DESI, you are applying AI to build better AI systems. So let's begin with the problems you saw with the way we build AI systems today that led you to start DESI. We started DESI three years ago, around 2019, October 2019, and it was quite the early days of deep learning. I, I believe that we are still in the early days of deep learning and we learn new stuff every day. Uh, but at that point in time, it was very challenging to, to, to build deep learning models, not talking even about deploying them into production. And the process was super manual, like doing trial and error iterations, changing the model, changing the hyperparameters, and iterating in order to get model to, to, to reach the maximum potential in terms of accuracy. And we started to see companies starting to shift those models to production. And then they are facing new challenges about deployment and how to take those models to production and what hardware, how to utilize the hardware well, how to, to, to run efficiently in production. That, those was the early adopters of the deep learning technology. And then we connected two dots about how manual is the process of uh, building the models and how complex it is to take them to production uh, with, with high performance. And, and we understand that we can do a major change here on how people build models in order to get them better to production. And that was the, the whole idea. We, we saw, like I said during my PhD, how corrupted is the process of building building a model, millions of, not millions, but um, dozens of, of training processes that most of them doesn't reach the, 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 the accuracy metrics that you're looking for. And then when you reach that point, the model is not yet good enough. And, and we can kind of catch two, 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 two problems here. One of them is how people build models and automate that process, but not only for automating the process, but also for gaining a huge gain in performance in, in the production environment. And that's kind of what we saw. It was early. It was the, the, the early adopters trying to, to push deep learning models into production those days, but, uh, but, but we kind of extrapolated how big the problem will be when the model will get larger and, and expand and the market will have more uh, practitioners trying to build models and take them to production. Uh, so, so, so this is what we've seen at that point in time, both from large companies and, and startups uh, using deep learning. And it's uh, still early days for sure. And it's still challenging to deploy models. But let's talk about the DESI's platform capabilities. You help organizations deploy models in cloud, edge, mobile, and data centers. What was and what is the main insight behind DESI? What is the thing that helps you improve the way we deploy the models? So in a high level, what we saw that uh, people are walking step-by-step uh, step in the sense that they're first trying to, to, to get to the accuracy that they're looking for, and then they understand, oh, we've got to the accuracy, but the model is too big. We can deploy it into production. We can run, in, run it uh, in the scale that we are looking for. 
and then they try to iterate on, on optimizing the model with several techniques. Um, and what we try to do is to kind of change how people build models by automating the process of the model design of model selection using neural architecture search, which is the core technology of DESTI, in order to design models that are more uh, accurate, faster, and exploit better the trade-off between accuracy and inference performance on, on any given hardware. And the idea is to help data scientists to build better models so it would be easier to take them to production. But it's not limited in that because the tools and the infrastructure that is needed today in order to take models to production is, is insufficient. So we, our platform is kind of an end-to-end, a place to build a model, um, train it, uh, select the model based on models generated with, from the neural architecture search engine and then deploy uh, based on our tools into production. For those who are less familiar with the neural architecture search, can you give a brief overview of uh, what it is, how it evolved over time, and how it is applied currently at DESI? Yeah, so neural architecture search is a family of algorithms that automated the, the design of the neural network structure, which called architectures. Uh, the idea is uh, part of the, the job of the data scientist or the deep learning developers is something that is called model selection or model design. And that's an iterative process uh, that is a lot of trial and error iteration until you get to the final structure of the model, the size of the model, the number of layers, the size of the layers. And there's a lot of many, many decisions that need to be taken in order to, to design um, and, and you will architecture structure. And, and the idea is that we can automate it kind of a, an algorithm from the family of AutoML that automate the process of selecting the model, selecting the right model, or, or, or even designing the right model for the problem. Uh, so neural architecture search started around 2018 at Google. Probably uh, there's some evidence for those algorithms before that. Uh, but at the beginning, neural architecture search has been, which called also NAST, has been used to, to, to reach the state of the art, like, Build models that are, are more accurate, and what and and it broke some records on on ImageNet, for example, which is a very very famous data set in 2018. But after that, we twisted the idea of neural architecture search to to take this technology in order to exploit the trade off between accuracy and latency. So we we designed a neural architecture. In an NAST algorithm that is called AutoNAT, which is not only aiming to get the best accuracy, but also looking on how the architecture, how the model is performing on the target hardware at inference time, and helping the data scientists to take decisions that are production-aware in the sense that the trade-off of the accuracy and the latency of the model that is running in production. So uh, it's a different flavor of neural architecture search that help design models that are production-ready in the sense of, of the performance. And how it works is it's the, the basic, like the, 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 the first generation of neural architecture search was quite um, quite simple. You, you, you design something that is called a search space, which is hundreds, thousands, millions of, of candidate neural architectures, and you just need a, a smart way to... to 
to to to check, to validate, or to 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 scan those uh, this large set of of candidates for for the model. So so that was kind of the old approach of model selection, and we had cross validation and and other techniques in order to avoid overfitting. But in in deep learning, it's a little bit more complicated because training a model is is taking a lot of time. So we can evaluate million of models, candidate models on our data set and train them and see which one is the best. So we need more clever techniques to do that search. And one of them, at the early days, it was was, uh, reinforcement learning to to drive that search. But today, this technology is relied basically on AI and something that is similar to generative AI that can get an objective and generate the structure of the neural network. So, so we can think about it that AI taking the decisions of how the model will look like. So basically, it's AI that builds AI. And how do you then validate the prototypes that AI built for you based on your requirements? So um, that's a good question because uh, two, two assumptions that we took that we can't run with with a lot of compute in order to, to test those models because we try to build a product, not a research paper. Uh, most of the neural architecture search algorithms that founded at the large companies like Facebook, Google, and others uses massive amount of compute in order to converge to, to a valid solution. And, and our approach was kind of, um, we, we need something that will run faster. So um, we, we, we asked, we, we designed that AI system to not only find the model, but also to tell us how it will perform. And the idea is that we get a metric out of the AI. It says that is a model and that is its quality based on some internal metric that we developed. And then we can compare internally AI models and understand, okay, this is more powerful, this is less powerful, and 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 ship those models to the customers that use our SaaS platform to, to, to request that uh, generation of the nest. So, so the idea is to, to shift that problem to be solved by, by AI in order to reduce the amount of computational uh, resources that we need in order to actually verify um, actually verify each and every model that our platform generates. And obviously, as any AI system, it's not 100% bulletproof, but we're around 95% accuracy uh, in in the predictive capabilities of that model, which basically says that we hit the targets uh, in the vast majority of the cases uh, that the the platform generates a model that suits the, the customer's needs. I see. This is interesting and uh, novel. I think, did you develop that derivative metric that you now use as a proxy instead of testing the full, full-scale test of the models? Did you develop it in-house or you use some academia-developed uh, metrics for that? The idea on how we developed that metric was... was uh, uh, a nice story about about something that is also related to, to the company culture. We simply said, said, okay, we have one week to solve that problem. And we did a competition among all the, the deep learning researchers. We'll find, and, and we had like kind of a data set 
with the ground truth, like I don't know, hundreds of models that we train and 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 sorted based on their their their, their quality. And we said, okay, we need to find uh, to to train that AI model to give that quality metric that has the the highest correlation with the ground truth. And it was a competition and. It was a very nice atmosphere along that week that it was competitive, but in the good way, uh, that, that everyone shared like kind of a Kaggle uh, scorecard, a, a, score, a leaderboard with, with all the results of all the individuals that are trying to solve that problem. And on the last day, someone uh, so, so someone did a change to his algorithm and, and took the, the, the leadership. And the nice thing when you do such things that we got, uh, I don't know, maybe five or seven uncorrelated uh, predictive metrics, and we just assembled all of them into one metric uh, that then improved further the, the performance of that metric. So that was a nice approach of solving something in an early stage startup uh, that maintained until this day, like it was two years ago or something like that. Yeah, this is the ultimate hackathon experience gone right. And the assembling is, of course, a very, is a beautiful idea. Okay, but then you figured out that just NAS is not enough and you need to build the bigger platform with more capabilities. So why did you decide to go that broader path? That that's a, a a very good question. Uh, one of our first design partners, we collaborated on some image classification task, and and we ran that NAS, and the NAS produced a model that is two x faster uh, than than the baseline that they were using in production, and, and they took that model and deployed it in production, and they said something like, "Look, we understand that this model is supposed to be faster, but we 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 don't see any improvement in in." Any metric in our in our cluster, um, and, and then we we started to to make some logs around the workload, and then we understood that the production environment has only something like forty percent of GPU utilization. So even if we improved because of some other processes in in the inference pipeline, like pre-processing the data, running the predict, uploading to the GPU, running the predictions taking the predictions back to the CPU, post-processing the data, and we uh, solved the problem of only 40% of, of the entire pipeline. And we understood that we need a wider solution in order to help people not only to build better models, but also to, to deploy them effectively because the model could be much better, but they won't see it in production. And, and then we expanded to to the deployment phase where we give tools to compile, quantize, and deploy, also control asynchronous inference pipeline, like in the example that I gave now. Uh, and, and it become a, a complete deep learning development platform that data scientists and machine learning engineers use when the point that they have a data and they want to build a model until the model gets to production. So, so that was kind of a natural expansion for us to overcome some uh, gaps in available tools and best practices about how to take models to production uh, that we still see, even if that story was 
something like two and a half years ago, we still see those gaps in production even today. There is no playbook on how to deploy models in the cloud or in the edge. And, and there is a lot of attempts to do that in many in, in many ways. And if we can help with some tools and that streamline best practices, uh, that's a natural expansion to, to our platform in, a, in my perspective. And in terms of the customer persona, how do you think about what's the best customer persona for you guys? Or what's the best, what's DESI is the best fit for? So the platform is very, very horizontal. We see companies that uses us on computer vision on mobile devices and generative AI for NLP in the cloud. Uh, so those are completely different personas uh, in many, many characteristics. Uh, so, so there is no one persona that like we target that this is the sweet spot and all the other is irrelevant. Uh, but we see some areas that some components on the platform give more and more value. For example, um, the, 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 the NAS algorithm really, really help for our um, data scientists and machine learning engineers that are building models to be deployed at the edge. Uh, at the edge, you have uh, constraints with the model size and with the, the, the com computational resources that you have there. And you want to build models that are small and efficient. And doing it manually, is, it's also almost impossible. And, and we see those developers that are using RNS in order to build those models uh, to perform better on the edge devices, especially edge devices that need to run on real time, like in, in the automotive industry or security industry or, 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 or manufacturing use cases. So all of those use cases that use computer vision on the edge in high resolution, in high throughput workloads, need to optimize from the model level at the top to the, the runtime level, the infrastructure layer, etc. So, so this is one of the segments that we see uh, the, the the strongest fit uh, to build uh, to build models using the neural architecture search. Another area that we see now growing is the generative AI, where we see basically generative AI is any model that is generating media. Uh, it could be text, it could be images, uh, and we see that those models are, are very complex and computational um, computational hungry. Uh, so optimizing and uh, the runtime of those models by using graph compilers, using quantization techniques, and also deploying them more, more efficiently is something that many companies that entered into that field of generative AI are looking for at the moment. And we see a lot of companies, either companies that are doing video generation or text generation and other stuff in that domain, um, looking for solutions on how to deploy those models more, more efficiently in the cloud because those models are very heavy. They take the, the most expensive GPUs in the cloud and those companies that get to some level of traction, traction they're starting to think, okay, how this will look when we'll do tricks next year or something like that. And then they start to think about how we deploy those models, how we optimize, how we reduce the cost, how we make their workload more responsive and 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 reduce the latency of the predictions of the model so, so the product will be better. And all of those, those things that the machine learning engineers are taking those models to production 
uh, are thinking, especially on those generative AI large large models. You're basically talking about taking stable diffusion open source model is not enough. You then try to apply it to your production use case and you discover that it consumes a lot of resources and you start optimizing it, correct? You know, you can take that stable diffusion and you can deploy it quite easily. You can build a, a, an inference server or, or do it as a monolite. But then you'll hit a wall when you'll start to serve more than a, a, a few customers or more than a few users. You'll see that you need you need more efficient workload. Um, and it also happens in, in generative text. So, for example, if you want to take that um, T T5 model by Google, the 3 billion parameters models, and do some generation tasks, and generation tasks in NLP model are, are, are auto-regressive, like running the, the generating uh, one token at a time, and you need to run through the model several times in order to generate a sentence, not talking about generating something that is longer than a sentence. Uh, so, so you understand that you need something different in order to run and those demos that 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 you can use in the that those demos that you can use when you simply deploy those models as is, uh, and you start to think about about optimization at that point in time, we see large companies that shifted towards uh, relatively large startups and 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 other companies that shifted towards that field of generative AI because they found their solutions that are better than 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 the things that they have done with the classical machine learning or with the standard deep learning for image enhancement, image editing, and other stuff. So, so we see companies, it's not only like new startups that took that technology and starting from zero, but we see uh, companies with very large customers and user base uh, trying to push those uh, type of models into their workloads. And, and then they, they need to think from the, first, from, from the first day on how they do it smart, how they do it efficient. Did you have a chance already to optimize some of those generative models and uh, can share any outcomes of that optimizations in terms of uh, improvements you were able to achieve? Yeah, so um, we, we have optimized a, 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 an interesting video generation that is a video generation model that is running uh, in a company. Um, so what they had is is a PyTorch model that they deployed as is in PyTorch. And when when they use the deployment uh, the, the deployment component in our platform, what they've done, they optimized that model, they quantized that model and deployed it with tools that better manage the, the inference pipeline, like the pre-process, the, the, the inference of the model, and also concatenation of several models, one after the other, uh, one generating the, the, the image, one, uh, one generating the, the audio. And that company, uh, they, they, they were able to reduce something that is uh, 3.5x in terms of the demand of computing their workload specifically. So uh, it immediately translates when when the cluster in full capacity to to something like is more more than sixty six percent in cloud cost. Uh, that's that that's the idea or, or the calculation when you have workloads that are in high capacity, 
and you improve the, the the whole pipeline of the processing of of the the the, the models with the pre-process and the post-process. So something that took one one second can take now three hundred milliseconds. So you can do it more than three times at the same time, and you get out you get more out of the compute that you are buying. Uh, so 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 this is exactly how performance can translate to cloud cost. But that's not the only value that they have sought. Their platform is kind of a SaaS platform that helps creators to generate video content. And what they want really started uh, at the first day, they wanted to, to, to have it respond quickly. Uh, it generates video, so it generates frame after frame after frame, and that accumulates the long turn, turnaround time of their workload. So, so what they had to do is to, to uh, optimize and parallelize some of the frames generation in order to return the, the, the video faster to the user that requested that. So, so another benefit is, is simply better product by, by having better, faster response from the server. So, so, so it's all, always a mix of several components of value. One of them could be latency and, and improvement in product. So one of them could be quality. Another one could be cloud cost, and it all sums up that, you know, um, it tools that help you uh, get better and faster on your deep learning journey. This is impressive, two-thirds of uh, cloud compute capacity or expenses shaved off is very meaningful for sure. Let's now look at the other extreme. So generative models are very compute heavy. And uh, the other extreme is deploying at the edge where you have very limited compute, much smaller models, but even more limited compute. So what kind of interesting examples or case studies from that world are your favorites? Yeah, so, so first of all, those are not like, not so the opposite because we see companies that their solution of reducing the cloud cost or improving the latency and the product experience on, on the mobile app, for example, is pushing those models from the cloud to, to the edge and run into the application. So it's not like one type of company is having generative AI in the cloud and another different type of company is having something running on the edge. Sometimes there, there are, in most cases, we see companies that having some of the workloads working on the edge and some of the workloads working on the cloud. And sometimes they try to shift computation from the cloud to the edge. Uh, and sometimes they, they, they have some hybrid approach that in some cases they process on the edge or in some cases they shift to the cloud. So, so And I think that in the future, we will we'll see more hybrid in the terms of what happening in the edge and what happening in the cloud. Uh, but if I need to think about a use case of, of something that is, is deployed on the edge, um, we're working with with a video conference uh, company that that having um, that virtual background feature that that we all know and and one of the things that you know when I started the company I started to pitch to VCs and and it for me it was the beginning of using Zoom and I have I had my old computer with i5 CPU and then I tried to turn on that uh, virtual virtual background feature on Zoom like three or, or three, three and a half years ago. 
and it had a pop-up that says you need an i7 CPU in order to run that feature. That point is the point like preparing to pitching to a VC and, and seeing that pop-up that I took that screenshot of that pop-up and I said, okay, that's the problem that we are trying to solve. We want everyone to, 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 to have the, the opportunity to run those product features that are relying on, on, on video conference applications. So, so we're not working with Zoom. It's a different company, but we're enabling them to run those uh, video editing or, or virtual background features or other video features in real time on the edge compute either in the in the uh, browser or in the native app uh, that is running on the laptop on wide variety of laptops without limitations. So, so, so that was kind of a closure for me after seeing that need, uh, trying to run a virtual background on Zoom and, and closing that customer with a very nice technological success story. What kind of uh, improvements in the edge deployments did you see so far with your customers? Yeah, so, so, so basically what we see usually is, is improvement from 3 to 10x in, in, in performance, but also here it's not only a story about performance because sometimes the memory is more important because companies are trying to, 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 to uh, deploy several models to work side by side on the same uh, compute device, and then they need to, to split the resources, for example, the, the memory of, of the accelerator with other models. So sometimes companies are more focused on reducing the, 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 the memory footprint of the model. In these cases, we have done something between 2 to 5x. And when companies are focused on reducing the latency, we're usually doing something that is between 3 to 10x. Uh, so, so those are all use cases that we see. We need to remember that um, the edge is mostly about computer vision and the cloud is, we have some computer vision in the cloud, but it's mostly about NLP and uh, the platform supports both of those use cases. So most of the the the, the case studies around uh, around edge devices are optimizing computer vision models to be smaller to run faster on the device uh, while preserving the accuracy. So, so that's that's the whole idea. Why not say speech recognition? Why only computer vision? When we started the company, we we started in the area in areas that we 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 are familiar with, uh, which was computer vision and then NLP, but um, and also, it's an analysis of, of the market size. So, so if we needed to see how many computer vision models deployed on the edge and how many speech recognition models deployed on the edge, I think that it's about 5x towards the, the, the computer vision in, in market size. So we started from the areas that the market is, is large enough. I believe that in the future, we'll expand also to, to the audio domain. Like now we're doing computer vision and NLP, and in the future, we'll definitely do audio and, and time series and, and other use cases that we don't cover now in our platform, but uh, it's just a matter of focus and time. And on your other note on pushing workloads from the cloud to the edge to save on the cloud costs, that's definitely a trend that we should see more and more in the future. I agree with you 100%. It, it's a clever way for the companies that can do it to 
reduce their costs and offload those to the consumer devices that get more and more powerful by day, especially if we're talking about mobile phones. Uh, so it's, it may be even a reason for a company to succeed versus the other to fail, I think, over time, if depending on how successful they are at pushing their workloads to the customer's devices, because then they can charge less for their tool or even offer it for free in some reduced capacity because they don't leverage cloud at all. Now let's talk about the biggest challenges your team had to overcome so far to build DESI to the current level of capabilities. That's a good question. Um, I saw a comparison or a question like, what do you prefer that it will be 2021 when it was relatively easier to raise money, but harder to, to, to recruit a team? Or 2022, when it's almost impossible to raise money, but easier, a little bit easier to, 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 to hire great people. So that's a good question. And I think that is also like, it's always like the balance between those two. Both of them are really hard. Uh, but, but I think that it will, um, have, has to go like step by step. So, so I think that once, uh, we raised some money. It becomes super challenging, like in the last two years, to 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 hire, to 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 build a strong team. And we invested a lot of our time and resources in order to find the right people to to build our team. Um, so so that's one of the things that was a huge challenge. We saw um, all the large companies. Our R and D is mainly in Israel, and and we saw that large companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon coming to Israel, uh, paying a lot of money to, 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 the, to the candidates. And, and we lost several candidates when competing against those tech giants. And since, I don't know, five, six months ago, we saw them uh, in, in a hard freeze and, and things become a little bit easier for now because you don't have for each every good candidate that you find a counter offer from Google, uh, so, so so that was one of the challenges. I think that the second challenge is um, the fact that that we are defining a new category in an early market. Um, that's something that requires a lot of intuition. Let's call it. I think that today. Uh, the market is more mature than what we had like when we started two, three, three years ago. And one of the things that was very challenging is to understand where the market is going and what you need to build in order to serve the, the, the majority of the market. And I think that we, 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 we made good choices. I think that we, uh, we, we, we discontinued some projects. Uh, which is also good because um, you you need sometimes to let go from projects that you invested a lot of effort in them. Uh, so, so it's kind of a balance. It's a combination of research, intuition, and some guess and luck, I guess. Uh, trying to, re- to 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 define a new category in an early market. Uh, before the market stabilizes, it's something that 
that is really hard to do. And and the thing that helped us sit in 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 that in that thing is um, to find the use cases and the people and the design partners and early customers that kind of represents the market and represent where you think the market will be in two, three years and build something that they they will love and then try to expand. And then we saw that um, it's like we have a very strong core of our platform that, that we can now scale. So, 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 so that was kind of how we treated that missing, missing data or, or, or uncertain market, market trend uh, in order to, to, to overcome that point in the deep learning market. How did you go about identifying that direction the one that is right and that will be relevant for the next uh, several years? That's a good question. I think that it's 30% signals and 70% intuition. Um, I think that it was quite clear that deep learning are getting, models are getting larger and larger. It was quite clear that it takes a lot of time and iterations to build those models. and Connecting those two dots of information together was quite straightforward at the beginning, but then um, continuing seeing those evidence that those two dots really connect was not easy in the early stage of the product because uh, you don't really at the point where you build everything that you want and you're working based on some intuition that if you'll connect these two problems together and you'll solve them uh, and the market will, will go uh, and people will go more to production, you, you'll have uh, something people like. Uh, and, 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 and I think that it was 60 to 70% intuition today. You know, we, we're making something like, I don't know, uh, dozens of, of sales calls a month. So we get a lot of feedback and a lot of iterations uh, with the market, but in the early days, it's, it was it was much harder to, to to get those signals from the market. Because market themselves, the organizations themselves, not necessarily yet known what kind of challenges they will face and uh, had no clue about how they will be, what kind of products they will need to overcome those challenges. Exactly, and even when you ask them, you 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 have so many like you 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 overwhelmed. Uh, you you heard so many problems, and, and it was really hard to to identify what are the real problems and what are something that they are uh, struggling with last week and they will solve next week. Uh, so, so so I think that that's the second part of like getting signal from a very noisy market that everyone have different problems and struggling with different stuff to, to understand what what will be the, 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 the major problems of that market two, three years after. How did you go about finding your first design customers and uh, convincing them to work with an unproven team, unproven startup? I think that 
we we just reached out very aggressively to to everyone I we thought will be a fit. Um, and we we found we found a couple of them, and we we I don't know why they they agreed to to to, to work with us. I think that. You know, when you have a problem and someone tells tell you that he can solve that problem, I think that your first idea is to, to try it out. So, so, so I think that that was the case at that point in time. Yeah, that was I was going to ask about. What was it that they felt the problem most acutely out of all the big organizations here? reached out to that those few felt it so strongly that they were ready to work with anyone who can help them solve it i think that like any any something in the early days you hear a lot of no's so so we 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 had like no several times for people that it wasn't their priority they're they're not at the stage in the development process that they were focused on, on performance or, or, or other reasons why it's not the right time or it's not the right solution for them. Um, but as I mentioned, we, we, we reached out to, 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 to as much as we could uh, in order to find those um, early customers and design partners to, to, to build our technology and product based on their feedback. When you look back at that process of securing your first customers, what are some of the things you think you did right? I think uh, reaching out to aggressively to as many as possible will be the one of the things you did, you've done right. And what are the things that you have done differently if had to do it again? In most of the time, we had like business orientation. So, so, so we were selling uh from, from the first day and i think that we might be able to shorten that process if putting business aside for the very beginning and and trying to 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 get those uh you know real design partners without putting business constraints on, on the engagement so so i think that that was something that i think we could do better on the three to five first um customers design partners and on the other side, the, the fact that we had, um, we reached out or, or we, we, we find our way to talk with many of them. We, we had a good sampling of the market to understand the problems. And we were able to, 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 to work with several design partners in the early days. So it was good. We didn't do like overfitting for, for one problem of one customer or something like that. Okay, let's turn to you personally. You had a PhD on uncertainty of deep learning models. I'm curious about your thoughts on that subject overall, the state of uh, the art with dealing with uncertainty of the deep learning models and what's your ideas overall and the thoughts overall on how this will evolve over time. So let, let's first talk about what is uncertainty uh, estimation in deep learning models. The idea is simple. We want 
a model not only to give us prediction but also to 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 give us kind of a confidence so to be self-aware of the confidence of its prediction and the idea is how how can we build models that are both accurate but also can can rate their own predictions um if you think about people um and and there is well, someone that is correct in 80% of the time but you he can't say when he's not sure and you'll see another person that is correcting 75% of the time but on the other 25% he can say that he's not sure about his 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 answer you'll prefer to work with the one that can tell when he's confident and when not so um that's that's the same idea on on deep learning we we can think about a medical application where you want to triage uh patients but you need to you need to 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 use that model uh that 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 doing that process but the model can say also i don't know and send, please send it to to you and 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 the system send it to a human doctor uh and with that capability um the the models can be embedded into real life mission critical applications earlier because we have safety mechanisms uh to to and rail guards to to understand when those models are are are, are false um so that was the topic of my phd and several works around uh this area i think that in terms of taking that um to 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 industry and real life applications of deep learning in production we are still in the early days uh we see that area of model monitoring and model explainability that is in some sense related uh but uh it it will take some time until will really understand how to to treat model confidence in in real life applications uh and and that's something that's still not happening in 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 industry we we have some companies focused about about the model monitoring problem and one of the the the, the main properties of that model monitoring thing is to to raise those flags when when something is different than expected uh but it's it's still the early days um i think that in the future in order to rely on those models and and, and um be self assured that those models are working well we need them also to give us feedback about how much they are confident with 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 their prediction and and this will help us kind of um rest assured that the models are, are making their job well and i'm talking especially about areas where where the models are doing mission critical tasks um autonomous driving robotics and 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 uh healthcare use cases and others uh those are the main verticals in my perspective to 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 employ uncertain estimation mechanisms in order to monitor the models Right now it seems we rely on humans to monitor and uh, control uh, the models outputs so a human being serves as that uncertainty estimator or at least 
maybe not an uncertainty estimator in a proper sense, but more of a validator and a safeguarding mechanism for those models. And the generative AI is uh, kind of well published. How much of an issue it has with the reliability? So do you think it's also an architecture problem and we'll have to develop new architectures, maybe beyond transformers, uh, to get to the to be able to actually enable this uh, monitoring or this estimation of the uncertainty. Yeah, we see that problem also in in generative AI and in some applications, like when we want Dali to to produce an image. If the image is not exactly what we prompted, it's one thing. But we we had that case with the Lactica. Uh, generative model by Facebook that took down because it kind of uh, generated fake um, f- fake research to, uh, results and also when you ask ChatGPT some stuff it will answer with, with a lot of confidence but sometimes it's just not correct uh, so, so, so I think that also in generative AI, in some of the applications, we, we have that reliability problem. And I think that if ChatGPT, for example, could say, what is the confidence that the answer is correct? Or even kind of highlight areas in green or in red, whether the, the model has high or low confidence in its prediction, it could be something that is very valuable for the user in order to understand how to use uh, those predictions. I think that in general, all the generative area is less, let's call it mission critical tasks where, where a mistake can be, can a mistake has a lot of impact. Um, but it will require also those types of, of safety mechanisms uh, in order to, to, to keep the predictions uh, something we can work with. As for people being uh, kind of the uncertain estimation of those models, I think that people are, are, are good on doing some job, but they're not so good on checking some other's job by, by our nature. So um, if you think about that you need to drive or to be a safety driver, I believe that for most of us, it will be easier to drive than, than be the safety driver. And this is why I think that giving people to do that AI safety walk is quite dangerous at the moment. Also, if you give someone to check facts that ChatGPT produces, it will be hard to say which of them correct and which are not. So, so, so I think that that has... Um, kind of inherent problem that the only way to solve it is in, in, in the approach. It's not exactly in the architecture, although one of my papers I proposed a new architecture that also can produce the uncertainty score and the confidence score. But I think that the solution for that is, is a different approach on how we use those models. If we use those models with with their confidence and the model will be transparent about where they 
how they got to that result and how confident they are in, in the result, it will be much easier to, to decide whether to rely on those predictions. But do you think we haven't built that uh, confidence score into the output yet just because we never got around to do that? Or there are more deeper reasons uh, why it's technically challenging to build it? I think that in the discriminative task, we have quite well confidence scores. Um, and the generative area is, is quite new. So, so we need some more time in order to get to the right metrics and also how to, to embed them in the human-computer interaction in a way that you, the human will be understood able to understand where are the limitations of that nice AI paragraph, that AI-generated paragraph that, that we read. Uh, so I think that it's a matter of time. Let's talk about the future a little bit. And uh, how do you see the way we develop AI systems will change in the future? One way we talked about is having the confidence built or engineered into the systems? What are some other ways that the way we build AI systems will change? That's a good question. I think that we'll, we'll see more types of personas that are entering into the field. So today we see the early adopters, which um, got high proficiency in building AI systems, but we need to, 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 to bring that bar lower in order to more people to enter into that field. And this is something that will, will happen naturally over the next few years. And, and I think that also Dusty with, with our open source that is called Super Guardians kind of lowering the bar um, to, to enter into the deep learning field and train some models, use some pre-trained models. And, and I think that what happening in open source is, is in general is, is very important to to, to making AI more um, accessible, affordable uh, for, for everyone. So, so this is one trend. I think that we need more people that are building AI, more, more practitioners in the field uh, that can take that, the AI forward to more and more verticals and applications. Uh, and we need to supply them with the right uh, tools uh, and, and, and best practices, pre-trained models, and whatever we can do in order to, 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 to make that impact on the world with, with AI. So, so, so that's one thing. The second thing is um, how those models that we know today will penetrate into more vertical applications in industries that haven't been used AI in the past. And I think that that's something that we'll see more and more AI doing stuff and helping people in in tasks that didn't use AI before uh, and automate streamline processes, either if it's business processes, personal processes, or, or, or other stuff in order to help people do their job better and faster. Uh, so, so, so that's another trend. We see what's happening now with the generative AI for uh, in the computer vision or for, for, for um, designers and what happened in text for, for authors. And, and I think that it will really help, help people uh, to be more productive. Uh, and, and that's the next, second trend 
I think in in AI, I think that AI will continue to go uh, to larger and larger models and more and more complex. It makes two 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 challenges. One of them is the training of those models that require a lot of compute, and the second one is the 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 inference of those models. And and this is exactly where DESI fits in to help companies deploy those large models and run those inference workloads very efficiently. Uh, and, and this is something that will gain a lot of a lot of traction in the sense that many, many companies will start reading how they can deploy those models more efficiently, how they can uh, optimize their workloads. And this is something that we'll see starting to happen, especially when we're connecting it to to the economic downturn that we're we're experiencing at the moment, uh, so those two dots together will bring many many companies rethink how they deploy deep learning. The bigger the deployment becomes, the more important it becomes to make it efficient, because every percentage point of additional efficiency gains or additional cost reduction. Now, when the model is deployed at scale becomes more and more meaningful and uh, justifies bigger and bigger investments at the stage of the model optimization. So that's definitely a tailwind for DESI. What are your long-term goals for the company? What do you want DESI to become? I see DESI becoming as the the go-to development platform for deep learning. So Basically, all the models, all the best practices, all the tools are there to do the end-to-end development from from the day you have the data and you want to build a model until the day you deploy it either in the cloud or in the edge. So kind of closing that loop, doing being the end-to-end platform and being the go-to for practitioners to build on top, either if it's on the, on the open source layer that we have out there that is called Super Guardians or or uh, on the commercial tiers. Uh, but what we see is as a go-to for people to, to simply start their AI journey or deep learning journey on, on the DESI platform. Universal platform for developing deep learning systems. Now, when you talk to, say, entrepreneurs who just starting their journey, building an AI-powered company, what kind of advice uh, do you give them? First of all, buy uh, GPUs for a data center. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I'm kidding, but but uh, they need a lot of GPUs, uh, so, so they need to start with something. But on one hand, you need to think big because because AI is really something that is going in a ten years, twenty years perspective, change the world. On the other hand, you 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 need to find a problem, a small problem that you can solve well now. And that trade-off between your your end game or your end goal and what you need to do in order to raise your next round is is very challenging. Uh, and I think that you need to balance between your 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 ambitious dreams and goals and the milestones that you need to cross for the next stage of your company and balancing between them, between the short term and the long term is 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 very complex. It is. And uh, 
it becomes even more critical these days. You may have more leeway when the markets are excited about new things and uh, money are flowing freely. You can have more month or more time to experiment with your ideas and investors are more patient. And at this point of time, we're getting those investors less patient. They want to see the results faster. So you should be able to focus on the areas where those results can be achieved faster. On the flip side, as you said, I think if you manage to secure capital and find the product market fit, the access to resources like great people gets a little bit easier during the downturns. So it's a good thing for those companies that have resources to bring those people in. Absolutely. Okay, Jonathan, I, this is the last question we had. Uh, where can listeners learn more about uh, the company, where they can follow you on social media, and also talk about Super Gradients, the open source training library? Yeah, so uh, a few months ago, we, we, we open source Super Gradient. Super Gradient started as an internal tool for, for us to train deep learning models, and, and then it tried to, started to evolve and have more and more models and more and more kind of best practices from data augmentation to training tricks. And we decided to open source it and collaborate with the community on building that tool and, and uh, bringing it to make it public to, to people to use that tool. Uh, so, so you can just Google Super Gradients and, and find the, the repo on GitHub and use it, contribute some code if you'd like, open some issues if you'd like, uh, and, and this is one way to, to, to experience a little bit about what this is building. Uh, but other than that, we have our uh, deep learning daily community on Discourse that, that you can join. You can follow us on social media, either Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, and, and just visit our website to read some materials or, or, or contact us uh, through the website. We will add all those links to the show notes. Jonathan, thanks a lot for joining me today. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.